G'day, mate. Luke Ford here talking once again with the Conservative Atheist. It's a new podcast that uh, just started to get to know its contents. I was on the show Thursday. We did a simulcast. And uh, I've got on the line with me Patrick, the founder of the Conservative Atheist uh, podcast. Patrick, so when did you start this podcast and why did you start it? Uh, I started it maybe... mm, maybe nine months ago. And uh, the reason why I started was because, um, I don't know, I had a lot to say. And, uh, you know, I'd done radio many, many, many years ago, many years ago. And so I was in in radio many years ago. And, uh, but but of course, there's a lot of constraints in radio. And uh, on podcasting, there's not as many. You know, there's certain things you can't say, obviously, there's, there's limits to everything. But um, it, it freed me up to express my opinions and my views unfettered and, uh, and you know, I, I just able to express how I feel about the world and politics. And it's mostly socio-political uh, discussions we have, but we discuss a, we can discuss a whole range of, uh, of things. And so tell me, tell me about uh, Timothy, your co-host. Timothy is no longer with me. Okay, but how, how many but he, shows he, did you, how many shows did you he, do together? We did many, many shows. I couldn't give you an exact number, but we've done we've done probably 150 shows at least. Um, we do at least five days a week, um, Monday through Friday. They they you know they drop anywhere from um, they we drop them you know Sunday night into uh, Monday morning uh, after 12 and 1 Eastern Standard Time. The last one drops Thursday night into uh, Friday morning. Uh, again, Eastern Standard Time, and that and that's uh, sometimes we have bonus shows on the weekend, but uh, they last anywhere from an hour to two hours to three hours or more, all depending on the topics that we're discussing, depending on the person that we're interviewing, uh, depending on the co-hosts that are involved, because I have I have different co-hosts that come in and fill in sometimes, and uh, so it's uh, but it's mostly socio-political, it's it's social issues, it's crime, it's uh, politics, it's things like uh, oh illegal immigration, things of that nature. Okay, so I, I asked you to tell me about Timothy. Can you tell me anything about his background? I, I can't tell you a whole lot about his background. Uh, he's, uh, I, I'd rather not, actually, to be honest with you. Okay, how many if, co-hosts if you have you, do, do what you like, uh, how many co-hosts have you had? Uh, the two co-hosts that I have that fill in besides Timothy, uh, is uh, Mendez. He's from Brazil. And then I have somebody, Samuel, and uh, he is from uh, uh, Eastern Europe. And how did you get these people? I met them online. We we, we used to use this, uh, and I never, I really don't use it anymore, but there was this uh, app called Clubhouse. And it's a, it's a audio app. You go in and you don't, you know, there's no, there's no video to it, but you go in and you have conversations in different chat rooms on different topics, and that's how I met. Uh, that's how I met both Samuel and Mendez, and they they expressed some interest in being on the podcast. And so I, you know, I said, hey, "Okay, when you know when Timothy can't be around, you guys can fill in." So I've run through a lot of uh, co-hosts myself, and this is a very common phenomenon, particularly in the distant sphere. It seems almost nobody can maintain a co-host for very long. Uh, do, you, do you have any thoughts on why that is? 
Because, well, for one thing, it, you have to be dedicated to the podcast. If you're not interested in doing the podcast, if you don't understand why you're doing the podcast, um, you know, then you're not going to be inspired to be on all the time. Other things are going to take precedent over you being involved. And uh, you really have to find somebody who's um, stable and uh, reliable and mature enough to, to be a part of the show. And, and uh, of course, you know, you're going to butt heads with people sometimes, and that's going to cause conflict. And it's just very difficult. It's very difficult. It's like radio. Radio is, is the same way. There's, there's people that partner up for years and years and years and do it really well. But most people, there's, you know, there's constant revolving door of, co-hosts and uh and um you know a lot of people move different markets that's the, that's the one best that's the one great thing about podcasting you can do it from anywhere and uh you don't have to worry about you know the the radio station changing formats or them deciding where they want another host uh you do it right from your home you do it from wherever you're at and uh it's you reach a lot of people Okay, and so what have you learned from doing a regular podcast? Uh, I, I've learned that, uh, I mean, I've learned that it, it, it's liberating to be able to express your opinions openly um, to the world in a way that in the past nobody could. In the past, it was if you were a, a TV personality or if you, were, if you worked for a radio station, then you could get your opinions out to the world, or you could at least get your opinions out to the market that you were in. But with podcasting, that's the best thing. You, I, I'm heard right now. I have I have a lot of listeners. I, I'm heard on over almost 60 platforms, and I'm heard in almost 60 countries around the world. A lot of the countries shock me because I I don't even know how many people probably speak English in those countries, but apparently there's got to be some. And so it's interesting, the idea that people are listening to this on a regular basis uh, from around the world in, in countries I would never think of. So how did you arrive at the title, Conservative Atheist? Conservative Atheist. Well, I've been, a, I've been a conservative atheist since at least my teen years. I've been an atheist since I was about 12 years old. Um, I'm half Jewish. My mother is a Jew. She's still alive. Um, and my father is dead. He was a Christian. And uh, so, and I've been an atheist. I've probably been an atheist before I was 12, but I just didn't really know what an atheist was. And so I would say around 12 or so, that's when I really realized, hey, I'm an atheist. This is what I am. This is what I believe. But I'm not anti-religious. I'm not, I'm not, I mean, I have a major bone to pick with Islam because of the violence and the, and the oppression and, and all that. But other than that, any of the other world religions, whether they're the, the two Abrahamic religions, Christianity and Judaism, or whether they're uh, you know Hinduism or Buddhism or whatever, I don't have a problem with it. As long as there's no violence involved, and as long as you're not trying to force other people to believe the way you believe, I'm good with it. Unfortunately, my fellow atheists are just as fanatical and just as, just as opposed to other people's beliefs if not more so than most most uh, religious people that they complain about. And, and how so important, I, you know, for, yeah. from, well, well, for many years, people would hear what I have to say. They would hear my opinions. And they would assume, because of my opinions, that I was a, a Christian. Or 
they would find out I was an atheist and they would, they would assume I was a liberal. And so I started with the moniker conservative atheist. And I probably started with that over 20 years ago. And it, it, it was to be as a kind of a shortcut so that I didn't have to explain myself every time that people got confused. So a moniker you're using on social media? Yes. Okay. And how important is your atheist identity to you? None. It's not important at all. The conservative part is very important. Mm-hmm. But but the atheist part is just an afterthought. Mm-hmm. And you talked about having a background in radio. Talk to me about that a little bit. Uh, yeah, I worked at various stations. Like I said, a lot of times you have to switch markets. It means you might have to switch locations and what city you're in. Um, some sta- some companies will have several stations under one roof. Um, and if they decide to change formats, you're you know you can try to you can try to switch formats with them, but it's it's difficult. And it's just not unless you're a Howard Stern or an Opie and Anthony or you know somebody really big. Um, you know, um, Dennis Prager, Michael Medved, somebody, somebody big, um, you're going to have to switch markets. You're going to have to change. You're going to have to travel. You're going to have to go to different jobs. It's not, it's not what people think it is. I don't think. And so, um, again, that's why I, I really like podcasting. So what, what formats did you work in? News talk. Okay, and you were you doing more of the news or more of the talk? More of the talk. Okay, and do you do you feel comfortable sharing what cities you worked in? Um, no. Okay. No, cuz well, I my have a very I have a fairly recognizable voice. Okay. And how how long were you in radio? Mm, 15 years. Okay, and uh, what what was some of the primary lessons you, you learned about producing good radio? Well, obviously sound qualities, but but you know the main thing is I I was talking, I was in the booth. The person that did all of the you know the sound checks and made sure that everything sounded good, that was the guy inside the the uh, you know that was the, the board op. He he, I had very little to do with that. Um, there's a lot of politics in radio. Um, and you have to watch what you say. Um, I worked for a couple of um, conservative stations that let me go because they found out that I was an atheist. They didn't say that's why, but the one had two stations. Uh, one was one was um, you know was the political station. The other was the religious station. And when they asked me if I wanted to go to the religious station, and when I revealed that I was an atheist. Um, they decided that they no longer needed me at that station, which I'm sure is probably illegal, and I probably could have done something, but that's not how I work. Now, my question, once again, it was, what did you learn about producing good radio? And you didn't really answer that question. Well, just, you know, be clear and concise when you're speaking. Um, I'm, not, I'm not really sure. I'm not fully sure what I understand. I'm not fully sure what the question means. What did you learn about making a good radio show? It, it doesn't seem like a complicated well, question. Yeah, yeah, it's not that complicated of a question. It's basically the same as podcasting. You just you you come up with really good topics, 
Um, you open the phone sometimes when you want somebody to call in that you can have a, you know, if the, if the conversation gets a little slow, you open the phone so that some people can, you know, they can comment on the topic. And uh, you do a lot of promotions. So, I, I mean, the different topics depend on the, you know, a lot of de- depends on what's going on, you know, currently. Hello? Ah, hang on. So, okay. So, let me read to you from something. Your sound cut I, out for a second. Yeah, I'm back. So, back in uh, 2000 and... In around 2008, uh, Dan Shelley, former news director, assistant program director at Milwaukee's WTMJ, talked about his career working with his station's uh, right-wing talkers. And he says, to succeed, a talk show host must perpetuate the notion that his listeners are victims and the host is the vehicle by which they can become empowered. The host frames virtually every issue in us-versus-them terms. There has to be a bad guy against whom the host will emphatically defend those loyal listeners. Does that ring true to you? Yes. Yeah, I, I have no problem with that. I, I consider liberals the bad guy. I don't know if you have been paying attention to the d- different debates that are going on uh, in Congress, but uh, there was a, a fairly recent you know, big debate on whether you sh- they should have to say the, the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, the Pledge of Allegiance that they were sworn to uh, to represent Yet they didn't, uh, you know, the, the liberal Democrats were opposed to it. So I, I consider the liberals the bad guys. I really do. I, I consider the Democrats, I consider the left, I consider leftists the greatest threat to not just the, the United States, but to Western civilization. They undermine Western civilization intentionally. They're more worried about what's going to happen in the Ukraine than they are what's going to happen in the United States. They're more worried about the sovereignty of other nations than they are of securing our own borders. They have absolutely no no, um, sense of patriotism whatsoever. And I'm not saying blind patriotism, but surely you should love your own country if you're going to be a member of of the government. So this this formula, the talk show host must perpetuate the notion that his listeners are victims. Does that ring true to you? Is that key to successful, particularly right-wing talk radio? Yes. Talk to me more about why it's important to, to use the, the framing that your listeners are victims. Well, because it gives, it gives the person a motivation to listen. It gives them, it gives them hope. They see problems in their own lives that they don't have a solution to. They see high taxes. They see the crime going through the roof. They see liberal cities and liberal liberal uh, liberal uh, oh, uh, mayors and and uh, prosecutors uh, doing cashless bail, refusing to uh, put people in, in jail for serious violent crimes. They see gangs of of, of criminals. Going into stores and and uh, and just completely destroying the stores and robbing everything they can get their hands on. You know the violence in the streets, and it's only getting worse. And they need somebody to come to that's going to, to that they realize is representing them. That's going to that has their best interest at heart. That feels the pain that they feel. That's not ignoring their needs. 
the way the way the government has been doing recently for quite some time now. And do you think it'd be possible to produce compelling, say, nationally syndicated uh, right-wing talk radio if you didn't use this framework? No. Right, no, because every, everyone's using it. So obviously this is the framework that, that works. I, I can't think of any well, exceptions it's, it's, in right-wing it's, it's, talk radio. Yeah, it's not, it's not just that. It's, I believe in this. It's not like it's it's just simply a format that I go by because I think it works or it brings in listeners. I'm I'm saying the things that I believe. If I didn't believe it, I wouldn't say it. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't be a part of it. I never would have and I I, I wouldn't now. Can you can but you the be whole point is, is I believe what I'm saying. Yeah. Can, well, I, I I believe that the left is destroying this country. I believe that the left is is supporting socialism. I, I believe that the left wants open borders. Uh, I, I, you know, and uh, you, you know, how many videos on YouTube do you see of uh, leftists being interviewed saying, um, you know, free speech, that was a good idea for a while, but meh, let's, it, it can be jettisoned now. It can be jettisoned. We, we no longer need it. Hate speech isn't free speech. Well, if you can only say the things that everybody agrees with, then that's not free speech. Now, no, can, they, they, mm-hmm. go, go ahead. ahead. Oh, no, I'm be, just saying they, the leftists don't care, do not care about the sovereignty of this country whatsoever. Can, could you be successful in talk radio saying things that you don't believe, just putting on a show? Of course you could. Oh, you, you can. Could do that, you could do that. You could do Well, you could do it. You could do it in anything, couldn't you? I, I don't know. That's an open question. I mean, if you're if you're a good enough BSer, you can you can you can do it with anything. So who who do you think is some um, successful right-wing pundits, talk show hosts, TV hosts who don't believe what they're saying? Sean Hannity. I don't like Sean Hannity. I think he's full of crap. I don't I, he's 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 he's, uh, he's just a lot of puff. And he's, you don't he's, think he's, he believes you don't think he believes what he's saying. I, I don't. I don't think he believes what he's saying to the extent that he says he believes it. So I don't think he's as passionate as, as he claims to be. Yeah, that's just yeah. my opinion. I'm not a mind reader, but right. So I think you're touching on something important there. That the biggest difference between an everyday conversation and a talk radio conversation or even a good YouTube conversation or a good podcast is that in talk radio or in podcasting, you are performing. And so you need to come with approximately 10 times as much energy and conviction and passion as you would in an ordinary conversation. Do you think that's accurate? Yeah, of course. Of course. There's an entertainment value to everything. If you're not, in, if you're not compelling and not just compelling the way you would be to a, somebody that you know um, that you're a, that's a friend of yours that you're having a conversation with, but compelling to strangers. Then, if you're not compelling, then then it's not going to it's not going to work. Nobody's going to want to listen. Nobody's going to want to hear what you're saying. They can have a conversation with anybody. So it has to be compelling. It has to be entertaining. You have to put it out in a certain way. If you don't, then you're wasting your time, and nobody's going to listen to you. 
So did you find a, a challenge to bring that adequate amount of energy to your show every day? No. I, I, you know, I was, it depends on the, on the co-host I have. That's the, okay. So that's another good example of, of why there's a problem with, with co-hosts. Because if your co-host isn't as passionate as you are uh, and your co-host, you, you say something, you throw it to your co-host and your co-host gives you basically nothing or very little. And, you know, then, then it, it drains the entire show. So then you, then you have to say, okay, you know what? This person is, is being a, a, a more of a, a hindrance than they are a help. It, it's more difficult to do some on your own, but I'm going to, apparently for a while, I'm going to have some co-hosts that ro- rotate in and it's, it's just going to be me on some of the shows. And so what I'll do is to augment that is I will add um, news clips, audio clips, and uh, I'll, I'll, I'll pontificate on, on what they've said and give my own ideas as well. But how do you bring that amount of energy? I think, see, the energy level, I, I think, is, the, is, the, is a big thing that people don't understand about hosting a radio show, how much energy is re- required. So any, any tips or anything that you can share from your own experience so that you can rev up to bring an adequate and compelling amount of energy to your show? Only speak about things that you're passionate about or that you think you have some knowledge on. If you don't have any, if you don't have adequate enough knowledge on, on the, on the issue and, uh, and you know, you're, or, and you're not somewhat passionate about it, you're not going to bring enough energy to the show. You're just not. Yeah. You, you have to be energetic you have to, uh, you can't be shy. You can't hold back. And, and that's the downside about, about radio versus podcasting. You, you have to hold back a lot on radio, a lot more than you do on podcasting. On podcasting, you're pretty much open to, open to say whatever you want to say within, within of course, there's always somewhat, some limits, but not much. And so just, just get yourself, get yourself revved up. Think about something that you really are passionate about, crime. Some stories you've seen, the, the, the nine-year-old girl that was punched over and over and over again in the head by the 14-year-old boy on the bus recently in the video. Um, that's something I'm definitely going to speak about. And I, I think you're touching there on the second element that's essential for producing good good talk radio, and that is preparation that uh, the yes. more preparation, the better. Uh, ideally, twice as much preparation for the amount of time that you're on air, I believe. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it, it, this is the internet age. There's absolutely no reason why anybody isn't fully prepared, doesn't have tons of material to go on. You want to have more material than you're actually going to use. If you don't use all the material, that's fine. It's better to have too much than not enough. So you get video clips, or well, in this case, audio clips. You get audio clips. You get articles. You read. You read the information. You make sure that you have plenty at hand. Little facts, little factoids here and there that you can throw in. And try to know as much about the situation as you can. Again, this is the information age. There's absolutely no reason why anybody 
should express an opinion on a podcast without having the adequate amount amount of information at hand. There'll be things I'll be talking about and I won't be sure about something and I'll have my phone in one hand checking checking the facts while I'm talking. Or if one of my co-hosts is speaking about something, I'll be checking a fact real quick. In the past, you just, you, you had papers that, you know, people would bring in or the, or the uh, board op would send you information. But with this, you've got, uh, you know, I've got my uh, iPad, I've got my, my, my iPhone. I've got all the information I need right at hand. How did you know when was the right time to cut off a caller? Um, when it started to lag, you can feel it when it gets, when it get when it starts to lag and they're, and the, and the person's pretty much said what they have to say and they're just kind of droning on at that point, then you just cut them off. Uh, who, who is I, try, I try to give everybody mm-hmm. adequate time to speak and say what exactly what they want to say, get their opinions out. And, and so, even if somebody disagrees with me, in fact, I prefer people that disagree with me. I, it's boring talking to people that always agree with me. So on a, a typical hour of uh, talk radio, what was the ratio of you talking to listener listeners talking? What was the ratio of me talking to the listeners? What was the ratio of you talking versus the listeners talking? Oh, probably, I probably talked 70% of the time. Yeah. And what, what what were the biggest challenges, if any, in transitioning to a podcast from background in talk radio? Um, I, I, you know, you have to do it, take care of all the technical stuff yourself. You have to edit yourself. If you decide to edit, if there's editing to be done, you have to do it yourself. Have to check the, check the sound levels yourself. You have to find the guests yourself. Um. You know, you got to hound people and send emails and try to call people and all the things that somebody else would have done in the past. I think most people would be surprised how little technical um, things people know that are behind the, the mic. They have other people do that for them. So you don't have all that anymore, but it gives you more control, I guess. You're more part of the process. Who who are some other right wing pundits and talk show hosts who strike you as the least sincere aside from Sean Hannity? Mm, that's a good question. Um uh, Oh, what's his name? His his name escapes me. Oh, I think he was on MSNBC for a while, then he went to Fox, and now he's got his own – he has his own network. Oh, Glenn Beck. Glenn Beck, that's right. Well, I don't know why I couldn't think of his name. Yeah, he's about as insincere as they come. He is He is the epitome of insincerity. He's a, he's a performance artist. He's not. He doesn't mean anything he says. I wouldn't trust him as far as I could throw him. The idea that, uh, you know, when I first saw him, I think he was on either on CNN or MSNBC. And I really liked what he had to say. And 
I, I thought to myself, well, it would be really great if he was on Fox. And then he moved to Fox, and it's like he lost his damn mind. He had, uh, oh, uh, Ann Coulter on, and they're watching video clips and making fun of video clips. And he's, they're eating pudding. And uh, there's times when he would bust out into fake tears and cry. And he would go on Bill O'Reilly's show back when Bill O'Reilly had the factor. And he would uh, disrespect and mock Bill O'Reilly right to his face in the most obnoxious, childish way. He was, he was a, he was a mess. So I'd say him, he's a, he's a, he's the prime example of what I'm talking about. In fact, I said Sean Hannity because I couldn't even think of him. He's, he's so off my radar. I don't, I don't even think about him anymore. And uh, what are your views on Dennis Prager? I love Dennis Prager. I'm, I'm a, I'm a huge Dennis Prager fan. I couldn't 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 have enough couldn't say enough good things about Dennis Prager. Dennis Prager is is the is the is the person that you should that every um, in my opinion my every broadcaster should strive to be Dennis Prager. Very intelligent man, very well educated. I believe he's fluent in Russian. Um, he studied abroad in Russia for a while. Um, and he's he's very morally sound. And and what about of the course. way he conducts his show? Any anything that you admire about that? Um, I, I admire the fact that he he seems like a genuine person. I don't like I don't I I don't find, I don't he has what's called the happiness hour. I don't like that. I I, I think that's just a, kind of a waste of time. The male female hour, I'm kind of iffy on. The happiness hour, eh. it's, I don't see the point. And will you listen to him with with commercials, or do you only listen in you know some some form where they edit out the commercials? It depends. It depends if I'm out and about. Obviously, I'll listen to him with commercials, but uh, I try to listen to the podcast so I don't have to listen to the commercials. And uh, what other right-wing talk show hosts or pundits do you enjoy listening to? I like Laura Ingram. I'm a big Laura Ingram fan. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, I, I think Laura Ingram is probably the one I enjoy listening to the most. Tucker Carlson, I used to like him. Um, I, I don't know. After a while, though, he's kind of rubbed me the wrong way. And I heard Michael him interview Savage. a guy. Uh, mm-hmm. Go ahead. Michael, Sorry. I can't. Uh, yeah, I, I have absolutely zero respect for Michael Savage. I remember one time he was so angry with Laura Ingram, and I, I don't remember why he said this, but Laura Ingram had cancer. I think it was breast cancer, but I could be wrong. And uh, he had said something about, um, I don't know. He said, I can't remember if he said he, he, I don't remember, but it was something disparaging about her cancer. And I think that's why he was actually let go from Fox. Are you talking about Michael Savage? So I just, yes. Yeah. I I interrupted you when you were talking about you heard Tucker Carlson interview someone. I heard Tucker Carlson interview a young teenage boy, and apparently the school had uh, had had organized the students do a walkout to protest 
um, something to do with illegal immigration, protest, uh, you know, cracking down on the illegal immigration, something like that, something along those lines. It's been several years back. And he interviewed this young boy, and he tried to say that the that that they create that the CN, that CNN created the sign for him. I believe that's what he said. And the, the boy kept trying to say, "No, I, actually, I created it myself. They just told me to create it." And uh, and he kept talking over top of him when he would try to explain. And uh, I thought, well, you know, this guy's not not as sincere and and straightforward and forthright as I thought he was. Uh, who who has influenced you the most when it comes to conducting talk radio or a podcast? Uh, Dennis Prager. Dennis Prager and by far. What, 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 I, I, what don't get me did wrong. You discover I did, him? I, oh, I discovered him in the early 90s. I discovered him in the early 90s. I don't remember exactly what year, but yeah, it was like early to mid 90s. So quite some time ago, probably, yeah, like maybe, I don't know, early 90s. I couldn't give you an exact year. And again, I interrupted you. You were saying, don't get me wrong about Dennis Prager. Um, no, I don't think it was about Dennis Prager. I don't recall. Oh, okay. I'm doing a really bad job. I keep interrupting and jumping in at the wrong, wrong beats. So when did you start paying attention to talk radio? Oh, uh, probably in the 80s. Yeah, I enjoyed uh, Oh, don't. Oh, I know what I was going to say. Don't get me wrong. I enjoyed listening to people like Howard Stern. I never listened to Opie and Anthony. Um, I've listened to some of their clips on YouTube, but I never listened to Opie and Anthony. But I was a big Stern fan for a while. But he's he's uh, his show is completely gone off the rails so he's no longer worth listening to sad so, but true so one thing i noticed when dennis prager got a nationally syndicated show circa 1993 94 one thing i noticed was that i was invariably more angry at the end of listening to dennis prager like angry in the direction he he wanted it was that, right. you know, victimhood, you know, you're being, you know, victimized. It, it inevitably left me more angry. And I find that, generally speaking, with right-wing talk show hosts, that they do kind of stoke those those fires of anger. Is is that fair? Do you relate to that? Uh, I do. I do, because they bring up things that bother me in ways that, in ways that in, you know, it it brings up all the feelings that I have about those situations and they do it. They're very artful about, you know, explaining the situation in such a way that it, it does evoke feelings of, of rage. Um, and I'm not an emotional person, but when I think about things like, you know, transgender or transvestite story hour, or I see a video on YouTube of uh, some kid going to a, you know, transgender strip club, and them actually, you know, having the kid participate and dance and get money from men. And when I see these things, uh, you know, and I hear them talk about it on the radio, I, it, it drives me absolutely bonkers. You know, it's, it's, uh, this, there's so many things that are happening that are, that are, you know, Western civilization is coming unraveled at the seams. 
And whether, you know, I, I think civilizations usually go in a pendulum swing. And they've gone really, really far to the left. Now, one of the two things can happen. Either that pendulum can swing back in the other direction eventually, or it can just collapse. And I'm not sure what's going to ha- which one's going to happen. But I don't hold out a lot of hope. And listening to other people on the radio that are expressing the views that are already in me helps me think through things, helps me really crystallize how I feel about different things. They say things that I, that I feel. And so that's what I try to do when, I, when, I, when I'm speaking, either when, back when I spoke on the radio or now that I'm on podcasting. I, I, I try to do the same things that, that, that I did in the past and that other, uh, other hosts do, like Dennis Prager. Um, and uh, hopefully, hopefully I make an impact on people that agree with me and, and need, somebody, need to know that there's somebody out there that feels the way they do besides just them and maybe a few of their friends. What do you think of uh, Mark Levin? Um, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan. I don't dislike the man. I don't really hate the man, but I'm, I'm not a fan. Yeah, he sounds like a, a yelling, angry homeless guy. Yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a fan. I'm not a fan. Mark, to me, Mark Levin and Michael Savage are not that different. Yeah. And have you paid uh, yeah. any attention to uh, John Ziegler? No. Okay. No, I have not. Mm-hmm. I used to listen to someone called Rusty Humphreys. I don't know if you've ever heard of him or not. No. Was he, where was he based? I believe he's based out of Texas. Okay. Huh. And were you about to say something? No. No. Okay. Sorry. Boy, I'm really doing a bad job reading beats. Uh, <laughs> no, you're, you're doing, you're doing, you're doing fine. Maybe, maybe I'm not, maybe not, I'm not being a good guest. I don't know. I'm, I'm just trying to roll with the punches. No, I, I appreciate it. You so, know, I've interviewed a lot of people, but yeah. I, I haven't been interviewed very many times myself. What have and you so learned? It, it, yeah. it seems very strange. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but what have you learned from interviewing people? I, I've learned that. I've learned that I'm a little bit more open um, than most people are, whether that's a good thing or whether that's a bad thing or, or somewhere in between. Um, everybody, everybody has, has a certain line they don't want to cross as far as their opinions and, and their views on the world uh, for various reasons. And um, back when I was in radio, I, I had those lines. As much as I hate to admit it, I, there was lines I wouldn't cross. And uh, again, that's the best thing about podcasting. Most of those lines are gone now. But uh, mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I've learned that I can. I've learned that I can, um, you know, speak freely. And uh, I kind of lost my train of thought. I'm sorry. Yeah, just... that's that's okay. Let me let me um, bring it back to something. You said you mentioned that you're more open than most people. In what areas have you been open, say, on, on radio or in, in a podcast that uh, most people would not be? Okay, so I'm more open. Pod, radio, I wasn't. I, I, was, I, I spoke about abortion. A lot of people don't like to speak about abortion. I'm pro-life. I speak about it. Um, it's almost a, a no-no for most, most broadcasters. 
most conservative broadcasters will not spend a lot of time on abortion. They just won't. They might mention it here and there every once in a great while, but it's it's a it's a topic that most won't go to. So that's what that's how I was open on the radio that most weren't. As far as uh, as far as podcasting, are you are you sitting down? Yeah, sure. Are you holding on to something? Yep. Okay. <laughs> as far as podcasting goes, uh, I'm open about the uh, racial element of violent crime in the United States, and I'm open about the religious element of um, of terrorism worldwide. And most people won't. When you hear people complain about crime in the city, they'll say, well, that's what you get from a liberal city. But if you watch all these videos on YouTube, if you look at the crime stats, it's all, it's not all, but it's damn near all one group committing these things. And uh, I'm sorry to say, but that's black people. Now, what the solution is, I have absolutely no idea. I have no, I have no clue what the solution is. I wish I knew what the solution is. But we've tried everything. We've tried everything. We've tried welfare. We've tried. We've tried government housing. We've tried uh, set asides for government contracts. Um, we've tried uh, everything. Early, early, you know, we've tried uh, free. Uh, oh, ele- not elementary school, but uh, oh, uh, pre-elementary. Uh, we've tried yeah, everything. Free, free kindergarten. Yeah, we've tried. We've tried everything, and nothing. Nothing is fixing it. Nothing is fixing it. And so I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a stat. Uh, again, you might want to hold on to something. Your listeners might want to hold on to something. Black people are 13% of the U.S. population. They, ca- they account for 55% of the murders every year. Now, I want everybody to think about that. 13% of the population commits more murder than Everybody else combined at 87% of the population. There's something wrong with that. It can't be because of slavery. It can't be because of the past. Jews went through horrible things. They're almost wiped off the planet. You don't see Jews out there committing that kind of violent crimes like that. You just don't. Roughly every year, nearly 38,000 white women are raped by black men. Every year, less than 20 black women are raped by white men. Not less than 20,000, less than 20. It's called a statistical zero. It's such a small number that it's almost impossible to express it in percentage. These are problems. These are major problems. If you look at every single violent crime, including mass shootings, believe it or not, if you look at every single violent crime, Per capita, black people commit more. And people will say, well, most murders happen, they're, they're inside the race. One bl- a black person murdering another black person, a white person murdering another white person, an Asian person murdering another Asian person. And this is true. But more black people murder Asian people than Asian people murder black people. More black people murder Hispanic people than Hispanic people murder black people. More black people murder white people than white people murder uh, black people. It's just a fact. If facts are racist, then so be it. I mean, it is what it is. Men commit more crimes than women. Is that sexist? Am I anti-man? No, I'm just stating the facts. 
men commit more crimes, especially more violent crimes than women do. It is what it is. And I, I, I don't know, I don't know why people are so determined to deny reality. You cannot solve a problem if you refuse to admit what the problem is. Now, how would if I you... say I can't? If I say I can't drive to Cincinnati, and I have because I have no gas in my car, or I'm, if I say I can't drive to Cincinnati because somebody won't let me to drive to Cincinnati, and, but the whole reason is I don't have gas in the tank. I can keep saying I can't drive to Cincinnati because somebody won't let me, but if I don't have, if unless I realize that it's the problem is that there's no gas in the car. The situation is never going to get solved. I'm sorry, go ahead. Now, how would you be asked to talk about something this charged on talk radio? Never. Not, not to this extent. How, how are you allowed to talk about these things on talk radio? Like the racial nature of crime? You have to pretend like it's the, the, the it's just the Democrats. And don't get me wrong, the liberal Democrats, they, they do encourage this behavior through their weak stance on crime, through their through their through their inability to hold people accountable for their criminal actions. So they do they do create the atmosphere and they do, you know, the no cashless the cash the uh, cashless bail, um, you know, the weak, you know, giving light sentences to violent criminals. Things of that nature. They, they do create a, a situation. They do. They create the environment that that breeds this kind of behavior, but facilitates it. But they don't create it. They don't create the crime. So, I, I don't know what the solution is. I really wish I did. Now, when so, talking about the Islam and the religious component in say some some terrorism how much are you allowed to go there in talk radio in your experience you're allowed to go a little bit further but you have to say say ridiculous things like oh it's uh, it's not the religion the religion's been hijacked now, i'm sorry folks but if anybody knows about the life of muhammad and the type of behavior that he that he exhibited and the way that he gained power how is how is Islam hijacked? Islam hasn't hijacked. ISIS and and the and uh, and the Hezbollah and the various terrorist organizations, they're living out the the, the the teachings of Muhammad. When they strap a bomb to themselves and blow up something, or when they chop people's heads off, or they stone women to death for being for not covering their face, they're living out the, exactly what they what Muhammad taught. So how is that hijacking the religion? If you're if you're doing exactly what the founder would have done, then when was the religion hijacked? And you can't say that on you cannot say that on radio. You have to you have to go through all the nonsense, all the BS about oh it's a religion of peace and and uh, you know it, it, it's it, forget about if you look at the opinion polls. Not just the people in the Middle East, but people in places like the UK, of Muslims in the UK, talking about how they think that Salman Rushdie deserved to go to prison or something else for writing the satanic verses. Uh, so, mm -hmm. Go ahead. 
Uh, approximately how many radio stations did you work for? Seven. Wow. And what was what was your life like uh, working in radio when you weren't on the air? It, you must have been moving around quite a bit. Uh, what did that do to the rest of your life? It made it chaotic. It made it chaotic. It made it unstable. It was a pain. You know, anytime you have to move, any any kind of move, I don't care if you're moving from one part of the town to, the, to another part of the town, it's going to disrupt your life. But if you're moving from one city to another, or even one state to another, it's it's taxing. It puts things up in the air. It makes things, you know, as I said, chaotic. It means that it's difficult to get deep friendships. And you'll have friends, but they're telephone friends. Sometimes you might work with people for a while, but it never lasts. Now, if you're a religious person, wherever you went, there would be a church or a synagogue that you could find almost instant community with. Uh, did you sure. still find strangers, substitutes? Yeah, yeah. Did, did you like stamp clubs? I don't know. Did you find like some kind of communal substitute for religion? No. I can't be around most other atheists. Most other atheists are far left-wing liberals. And uh, they, they, you know, I'm their, I'm their kryptonite. They do not want me around. They run from me like, they're, like, they're, like their ass is on fire. They don't like to debate me because most of the things that Christians say, most of the conservatives say, they'll say, well, you're just saying that because you believe in God. But they don't have that for me. So they don't know what to do. So I'm very, very frustrating for other atheists. Which is good. I like that. Now, from, from a secular perspective, the, the primary purpose of religion is to provide comfort to people. And perhaps the primary reason we're seeing steadily steady decline in participation in religion is that people are increasingly more effectively finding comfort in other areas, such as movies, TV, yoga, uh, various you know volunteer organizations, uh, therapy, medication, meditation, twelve-step programs. Where do, have you turned for comfort in your life? Nowhere. I've heard nowhere. I simply I, I express my views, my political views, my socio-political views. Um, I focus on politics. You know, I, I obviously I watch movies and TV, but no, no, no real, no real direction. No, I, I don't need a crutch. And uh, when did you first get diagnosed with cancer? Ooh, uh, back in I think May. And how how what what symptoms were you having? How did it happen? I was having uh, I was having uh, like a sore ache in my chest, and uh, apparently there was cancer at the the front of the chest, and there was cancer back inside the chest wall. Moved to my lymph nodes under my left arm. Um, I, apparently there's uh, and there was a, a lesion on my on my spine, my lower spine. They radiated the lesion on my lower spine, so that no longer bothers me. So when they found the cancer, were you already stage four? 
Uh, stage three or stage four. I'm not sure. And so what's your prognosis? They haven't given me one. I've asked several times and they said they don't know. So my oncologist actually kind of let me know she was tired of me asking. So, But, but haven't you done any research on your own? I have. I, I could live another 10 years or so. And how does your cancer manifest itself day in and day out? Chest pain? A little bit of ache, a little bit of soreness. Nothing, nothing too bad. And nothing too what, what what effect did the diagnosis have on your life? How did your life change as a result? It upset my girlfriend. My girlfriend's very, very upset about it. Me? I, I didn't know. I, I didn't, you know, it's one of those situations where you don't know how you're going to react until it happens. And uh, my reaction was almost zero. So I, I didn't know if I'd be curled up into the fetal position and crying or, you know, it doesn't sound like me, but who knows? You know, you don't, like I said, you don't know what you're going to do until you're in that situation. And it wasn't, it wasn't earth shattering for me. I'm not a really emotional person, so. Maybe that's maybe that's a big part of it. I don't know. I was waiting for it to happen, but it just never happened. And do you have a, a bucket list? Um, not really. I've done a lot of things. I've been a lot of places. I've done a lot of things. So not really. I can't think of any particular thing offhand. I wouldn't mind winning the lottery. Other than that, <laughs> other than that, I, I, nothing I can really think of offhand. So, is there what particular episode of your show that you've you've received the most attention for, or was the most listened to? So, the two most listened to, and the ones catching up with the other pretty quick. Well, quite some time ago, I, I did an uh, interview with uh, Jim Goad. I don't know if you know who Jim Goad is. Yes. Okay, so I interviewed Jim Goad, and uh, that has the biggest one. That's a, you know, that's, that's it's, it has a lot of listeners. I mean, tons and tons of listeners. And uh, then there's uh, the one with uh, Jared Taylor, and Jared Taylor is almost, and Jared Taylor happened long after the one with Jim Goad. And Jared Taylor is almost caught up with him, and I think it's—I think he's going to surpass. And uh, what's for your, those what's of your... you not familiar with yeah. Jared Taylor, he's—he—he uh, he founded the uh, uh, an organization called the American Renaissance. And in fact, a while back, Michelle Malkin, if you're familiar with Michelle Malkin, yes. she gave a speech at uh, at one of the Amaran conferences. Now, what's your what's your read on Jared Taylor? How would you describe him? Uh, the most honest man I've ever spoken to. Very honest, brilliant man. Fluent in Japanese, fluent in French. Well traveled. Um, very articulate. Just a just an all all around uh, brilliant man, and he is very very um, honest and open about his opinions and his beliefs. Not anti-Semitic at all, 
but he has he holds the same issues and beliefs as I do with uh, blacks and in, in Islam. And what's your read on Jim Goad? Jim Goad's kind of a flake. He's kind of a flake. He says a lot of things. I mean, he, he's a provocateur. I believe he works for uh, works with or were for Gavin McGinnis now. And uh, he's he's a bit of a flake. If you look at his early stuff, he's 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 a very strange character. So, and I think a lot of times he tries to argue with people just for the sake of argument, not because he actually disagrees with what they're saying. He works at being a contrarian. If you're a contrarian, that's fine, but be legitimate. Don't uh, you know? Be sincere. Don't don't work at it. If you work at it, then it's uh, it's fake. It's false. So which which episodes off, off the top of your head are you most proud of? The Jared Taylor episode. By far. I've been I've been trying to get a hold of him now for quite some time for an interview. And I was finally able to achieve it. I interviewed somebody, um I interviewed do you know who Paul Gottfried is? Yes. I interviewed Paul Gottfried. And he tried to hook me up with Jared Taylor, and for some reason it just didn't happen. And then I interviewed Jason Kessler, the organizer of January of um, of the Charlottesville protest. And he got me in contact with Jared Taylor. That's that's how it happened. Any any other episodes you've done that you're particularly proud of? Yes. Um Oh, uh, Robert Spencer. Now, a lot of people get Richard Spencer and Robert Spencer confused. Not Richard Spencer, Robert Spencer. Robert Spencer is the founder and uh, the chief CEO of uh, something called Jihad Watch. Uh, Pamela Geller is is an associate of his. So if you're familiar with Jihad Watch or or, uh, Robert Spencer, that was a really good interview. That was an excellent interview, actually. And uh, how would you compare the challenge of doing a show that's... Are most of your shows interview-based or are most of your podcasts you uh, talking about the news? A little bit of both. There's very little about it. We talk about the news somewhat, but most of it is talking about sociopolitical issues. So talking about crime in general... Um, talking about uh, illegal immigration, talking about terrorism, uh, talking about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, things like that. And what is your perspective on the Israeli versus Palestinian conflict? Um, How do I put this? Um, Call me Rabbi Kahana. (laughs) <laughs> do you know who kahana is yes yes okay call me call me mayor kahana yeah that's my that's my perspective i think uh i think israel should expel all the palestinians now is has think, there been an... the palestinians i think the palestinians on the west bank should be pushed into uh to uh syria and jordan and maybe lebanon 
uh, not Syria. Uh, I'm sorry. And uh, yeah, and uh, maybe Lebanon. And I think the uh, the ones in the uh, I think the ones in the uh, Gaza Strip should be pushed into uh, the Sinai Peninsula. So, is there a trajectory to your thinking, or have you always had these views? Um, you know, when I was younger, when I was a teenager in my early twenties, I was kind of um, I would try to see both sides of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But then, when the Palestinians had the opportunity to have sovereignty, have some you know limited autonomy, uh, and do their own elections, hold their own elections, they voted in Hamas. And so to me, that was that was pretty much the end of, of my sympathy for the Palestinians. When I see Palestinians, when I see mothers strapping and, and, and fathers strapping bombs, not to other people's children, but strapping bombs to their own children. And, and the one woman said she had five sons and she just wished she had more so that she could uh, martyr to them. When I see that, you know, you know the Hamas says we love, uh, we love, we value death more than more than the Israelis value life. I think that's pretty much. That means they're a death cult, and um, I, I can't respect that. And uh, a good idea, good good way to tell the difference between the Christian Palestinians. I mean, there's a there's a good experiment. If you look at the uh, if you look at the Palestinians, there's Christian Palestinians and there's and there's Muslim Palestinians. Both of them have conflict. Both of them have had terrorists that fight against the Israelis. The only group that commits suicide bombings and uses children are the Muslim Palestinians. In other words, they're in the same situation. They're in the same area. They're the same culture. They're the same everything. The only difference is the religion. And that's a, that's a really, really good example of the differences between Islam and the other Abrahamic religions. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you do you have any particular goals for your podcast from here? Well, obviously, I want to expand. I just want to, uh, I, I, I'm now currently looking for a new co-host <laughs> that's going to be with me on a regular basis. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know, Mendez and, uh, is from Brazil and my other co-host Samuel's from Eastern Europe and they have very little they have some knowledge of U.S. politics, but not enough. And and so I need someone who has more knowledge of what's going on in this country that can truly be a co-host and, and be a participant. Otherwise, it's, you know, it, but I'll work it out. Would you go to an American Renaissance conference? Absolutely. H- have you been to one yet? I have not, but I, 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 okay, you want my bucket list? One of my, one of, you know, that would be one of the things on my bucket list. Uh, Meet Jared Taylor in person and to attend a, 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 I just wish I could have been there when Michelle Malcolm gave her speech. Yeah, she used to be part of Conservatism Incorporated, but she went a little too far. Well, I, you say too far, I say just right. Well, too far for conservatism, right. incorporated. Yeah, I'm very happy with her tra- trajectory as far as her uh, her socio political beliefs.
And uh, what does your girlfriend think of your podcast? Uh, nothing. <laughs> She's not really into, you know, sociopolitical issues. She's not into all of this. I am, but she's not. Do many of your friends or family listen to your podcast? Uh, that I wouldn't know. I haven't asked, and they haven't told me. Are there areas that you've been afraid to speak out on that you might start speaking out on? You know, the only the only mm-hmm. time I thought that there might be a problem is when I spoke about transgender because it seems like on Twitter if you say something against transgender and that's at least that's you know that's eased up a little bit but it seems like on Twitter if you say something against transgender or or even seen as being um, not 100% supportive of transgender there's a good chance you're going to get your account suspended or even uh, banned and so when I first did a couple of transgender topics on podcasting I wasn't sure how it was going to go that seemed to be the third rail. You know, you don't touch that or you get fried. And so I, I wasn't sure how that was going to go. But I've done a few of them now, two or three of them now, and it hasn't been a problem. And what what sort of job do you think Elon Musk is doing with Twitter? Not nearly what I thought he was going to do. I thought he was going to make it a free speech platform, but instead, instead of making it a free speech platform, he's made it... Uh, you know, and some still is somebody else dictating. He now he's dictating. So censorship is censorship. I'm not a leftist. Leftists want leftists are okay with censorship if it's against the other people. Um, I'm I'm a conservative. I'm far right. Uh, I'm for free speech for everybody, including those I completely disagree with. And the idea that he doesn't like somebody something somebody said to him, and so he bans their account. Is pretty petty. I mean, the guy's a, a multi-billionaire and uh, I think the richest guy in the world. And uh, he's having stupid arguments with people on, on nobody's on Twitter. doesn't make sense. So what, what books would you say have most influenced you? What books have mostly influenced me? Um... That's that's a difficult one. That's a very difficult one. Hmm. I liked Animal Farm. Um. I don't know. I I really like some of the Dennis Prager's books. I, I got to be honest with you. When I've got into the whole podcasting thing, I I haven't. I don't do a lot of reading anymore other than what it has to do with podcasting. I spend most of my time looking up issues for this. Uh, what do you think of uh, Nick Fuentes? I have no respect for the guy. Why? Why? Well, for one thing, I'm half Jewish and he hates Jews. That's one thing. Uh, for another thing, he hangs out with people like Alex Jones and uh, Kanye West and and people of that nature. And, uh, you know, I, I went just to, you know, I, I don't like to take other people's word for people's character. And so I went on his website where he, where he uh, live streams and he says some pretty ridiculous stuff. So, 
I'm just not a fan of his whole whole shtick. Him and uh, oh, um, what's the other guy's name? The little black guy, um, Ali Alexander, and uh, a few of the others. Uh, there's some guy called Beardson Beardley, and and then um, oh crap, who's the other guy that just went to jail? Uh, baked Alaska. Baked Alaska. Yeah, these these people are not serious people. So and I have to respect the people, and I don't. And January six riot. So, on a scale of one to ten, and let's say nine eleven was was I don't know an eight, and Pearl Harbor was was a ten. Uh, what what uh, what number would you give the significance of? The- you broke up a little bit. Yeah, sorry. But sometimes, yeah. So, what what significance would you give the January six riots, January six, twenty twenty one? You say uh, 9-11 was an 8, and you sure that's not a 10? Fine. Let's say 9-11 is a 10. Um, like a 3 or a 4. It seemed horrible at the time, but nothing was really destroyed. It was just a bunch of jackasses going in and, and uh, taking pictures and walking around the Capitol. They shouldn't have done it. They needed to go to jail. Do they need to go to jail for 10 years or something? No, I, I don't think I don't think it's... I don't think it reached that level. Uh, all the lies about people being killed. There was only one person killed, some woman named Ashley Babbitt. And uh, to be completely honest with you, and most people won't say this, she kind of brought that on herself. You know, you bust the glass out of a, a window and a door in the Capitol building and you're climbing through and you get shot back through the door. Um, what did you think was going to happen? Yeah. And so on on balance, do you think uh, Donald Trump was more of a force for good or for bad? Good. And 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 how how highly would you rate his presidency? Um a 10 if he had got any any of the things he wanted accomplished accomplished. If he had been able to build the wall and get the border secure I mean, the problem is, is that, well, not the problem, it's a good thing, but it's also, you know, a double-edged sword, is that being a president doesn't make you a king. You know, you can't just say, we're going to build a border wall. We're going to, we're going to stop immigration from certain countries or certain countries coming in. You can't just say that because there's other, there's other, you know, there's, there's checks and balances. There's other parts of the government that can, that can block your efforts. And so... Yeah, I, I think he did the best he could. So, I think uh, I think we need to shut the border down. We need we need to, first of all, we need not only do we need to stop illegal immigration. I think we need to stop immigration in general from everywhere for a while. I like the Australian system of uh, of merit based. So we need to do that. And uh, if you don't secure the border then if you don't have a secure border that you can maintain, then you don't have a country. What was your perspective in 2002, 2003 at the prospect of invading Iraq? Iraq needed invaded. It needed invaded since the early 90s. Um, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush's father, decided not to go ahead and go right all the way into Baghdad. That was a mistake. In hindsight, that was a mistake because 
the only thing that he did was is that he he just prolonged the problem. Um, we had the UN had sanctions, and the U.S. government and the UN in general had sanctions against Iraq. But unfortunately, Russia and France and various other countries were doing backdoor deals with Saddam Hussein, which means the the sanctions meant nothing. Um, Kofi Annan, his his son, whatever his name is, was doing business with Iraq. Uh, how that how he was never criminally prosecuted for that I don't I don't really understand. And so, you know, technically, you know, Saddam Hussein already committed an act of war. He sent two men to the ranch to kill to assassinate um, George H W Bush. So that's an act of war. Um, when we had when we created no fly zones so that so that Saddam Hussein couldn't attack the Kurds, uh, the, they would fire at our planes. That's an act of war. So he needed removed. He needed removed one way or another. And the longer we waited, the less respect we get, we, the less serious people took us. And so I'm, I'm glad he was taken out. And uh, which which Republican politicians do you uh, like the most these days? Would you, for example, like to see Donald Trump running again in 2024? I'm conflicted. I'm conflicted. Uh, um, I'm I'm between Trump and DeSantis, but I think it's the, I think it's Trump's election to either accept or reject. I think if if Trump runs, nobody nobody in the Republican Party is going to beat him. Um, how Joe Biden is, with his cognitive deficit is going to be able to run a second for a second term, I have no idea. I mean, he was bad the first time. Now he he can barely finish his sentence. Uh, he doesn't hardly know where he's at. A couple of times he tried to walk off the stage, which would have been catastrophic. Um, I just don't know what would I, I don't know who his opposition would be. But as far as the Republican Party goes, it's going to be either him or DeSantis. And I think it's up to Trump whether he runs or not. I, I have to be honest with you. Most times I can give you a straight answer. I can say yes, this or yes, that. Uh, I'm conflicted. I can see some ways where Trump would be better because Trump just doesn't give a damn and he's just going to do what he thinks is right. But I also can see how, how DeSantis would be has less baggage and uh, might have a better chance at a general victory. But uh, I'm not sure that he has the same um, ability to just do what's right. Okay, I'm going to uh, move on for today. Anything that you'd like to promote or any final words for today? Any final words for today? Always be yourself. Always say how you feel. We only have one life. We only have one chance. If, even if you believe that you die and you go to some magical heaven in the sky and, and live forever, you only have one life here. Be sincere. Be legitimate. Be honest. Be forthright. Don't be afraid. I think that's it. Okay. Patrick, good to talk to you. Conservative Atheist. Check it out where podcasts are found. Okay. Thank you. You have a great day. Thanks. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.
Okay, I want to play a clip here from Decoding Academia, from Decoding the Gurus. This is Professor Psychology Professor Matthew Brown talking to Associate Professor Christopher Cavanaugh. There are two psychologists here. Sort of internal flex I had. I never voiced this, uh, but this is a safe space. Which is that, like you know the you know the convention that you know stereotypes are bad. It's terrible to stereotype people. Are you going to go you know, lead you some? Yeah, I'm going to go all lead you some <laughs> on you. Uh, but you know, as a psychologist, you you kind of know that that's like the human brain works in in, in schemas, right? Which is basically stereotypes, and and it has to work that way. Um, like <laughs> like there, there isn't a way that you can just remember like every single sort of instance of a category or a, as a, a stimuli as a perfect individual, unrelated to the other ones. It, it, your brain would explode. Um, so anyway, that's my little. little no, I there. I agree, and that like so those um like it doesn't even have. So yeah, he's essentially saying, of course, that uh, stereotypes work, right? We believe in stereotypes because they work. To be around the kind of culture war controversy things, just in general, people rely on stereotypes for things which are completely unrelated to like racial or ethnic stereotypes. Yeah, like, every, and, like everything. Like, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, again, I, I, I know people have been kept too long, but, you know, this is bonus content. But the um, thinking about the brain as something which is making predictions about what you're likely to see like a predict right so the more accurate your predictions are about reality generally speaking the happier you'll be that's why we need to be open to reality open to learning new more sophisticated top-down models for how reality works and more accurate and sophisticated bottom-up models for how we work and stereotypes are an invaluable service here if model that is modeling reality and and like interpreting memories and so on that you have is a helpful thing because you then realize it's it's trying to like conserve the modeling power right like so and so it will fill in gaps and from schemas and as a result if something like is kind of counter schematic it may be misrepresented more readily um and or or yeah so just like the tail one is the most obvious one i think because like curious george should have a tail <laughs> unless he, yeah. unless he okay here is uh Again, Professor Matthew Brown talking about what type of people are most attracted to conspiracy people theories. believe stupid things. And, um, you know, individual personality or individual differences more generally, it's, it's a little bit broader um, than just personality, all the different things that make each of us a little bit special. Explain some of it, but like everything in, in psychology, it's, it's only like a percentage. You know, like you know, it's we can, you can you can detect these these correlations um, between say people that are very um, open to experience or or it, the relationships are a bit complicated and there's there's this yeah it's 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 not clear cut but but being very open to experience and being um what's the word um um sort of disagreeable uh so less less agreeable so because disagreeable people tend to be more paranoid um tend to be more conspiratorial essentially so you got so if you've got a lot of receptivity to to diverse and you know alternative ideas combine that with um predisposition to be a bit to always assume the worst about other people and to be kind of paranoid then that would be risk factors um there are other more specific so, so those are from the big five personality dimensions there are more specific uh, traits that have been linked to um, yeah, um, conspiratorial thinking, um, but I'd have to I'd have to look them up to jog my memory. Fantasy prone tendencies would tend to be ones and like uh, the ability, like imaginative thinking, and those tend to be correlated with, uh, like in, in some sense, being fantasy prone and being con a conspiracy theorist is obviously like a, a tautology. But um, I I think mm. the broader ability 
to be like interested in uh you know it probably also accords with creativity to some extent i would imagine i'm not sure about the literature or not mm -hmm. but i definitely know like uh that the tendency towards being interested in imagination and uh fantasy alternative words and worlds and stuff like that uh correlates and that that probably accounts for why so many famous authors and like public intellectuals or whatever end up being conspiracy theorists right because they uh yeah that the the kind of people that can imagine alternative worlds probably can have a more easier time imagining uh non-existent conspiracy theories or or exaggerated versions thereof mm. but yeah, yeah i i also don't think the the, the the notion of like having low intelligence is like the you, you can be a very high intelligent person and uh conspiracy prone so yeah 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 so the other two the other things i just dropped my memory um because i knew there was something else we're getting um one of them is kind of like schizotypy all right so um that that's tends to be a and, and there's huge um correlations between like say conspiracy theories and belief in the paranormal um and you know they the same kinds of people or the same risk factors kind of lead to all of those diverse things but conspiracy theory there's a, one thing that is a more of a sort of an emotional kind of component of it as opposed to a cognitive component and that is being being disappointed and unhappy and resentful sort of in one's own life is a big risk factor for um conspiracy theories and adopting that kind of worldview and that's because um and it, it, it's a bit like how you know the sort of um people might probably heard that you know you know you know angry frustrated you know young men are often you know attracted to to far-right kind of political movements right because it provides a schema a framework in, in, in which explains your, you know, your relative lack of, or your perceived lack of success, and and your frustration, and it puts it puts the cause of it. It explains why these these evil sinister forces, right, are, are out there and holding you down. Um, and look, you see this obviously in some of our gurus. Yeah, they all have this personal backstory, <laughs> right, of these malignant powers and systems and discs or whatever that that explains why they haven't achieved as much as they would like now they're not necessarily unsuccessful people but they just they their expectations are way higher than than what they have got um so it's sort of linked to the narcissism right because the narcissism will 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 create that that imbalance even if you are reasonably successful um by, by normal standards but it's definitely true that um people that have that have had a lot of setbacks in their life um you know might have started a business and been unsuccessful other people in my family actually that would fall into this have fallen in this category and and are conspiratorial and they they're sort of unhappy with how their life has turned out un, uh, unhappy with their own level of success and they can get the the conspiracy theories one provides them with a source of self-esteem in the sense that they can now they understand what's going on right so so at least that they're so they, that they're able to sort of distinguish themselves as better than most other people in the sense that they're woke to what's going on and the other thing is that the 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 overarching conspiratorial worldview gives an explanation why they never had a chance right there, there, there was no way that their business was going to be successful there was no way that they were going to have have a good career in academia or whatever it's not their fault in other words um so it acts as an emotional support like a self-esteem type support yeah interesting yeah. i never would have guessed yeah some good content there from decoding the gurus all right here is robert green in his talk at smu in dallas he says, I explain why your success has nothing to do with genetics. It has everything to do with your degree of motivation, which strikes me as ludicrous. I want you to get over this notion that I find so annoying that so many people have, that success and power in life is dependent on something like genetics. Like some people are born 
with a larger brain, or they have wealthy parents who are able to send them to the right school, or it's all a matter of luck. What really makes people successful and powerful in life, and it's not just me saying this, I read hundreds of books on the subject, what makes people successful is their degree of motivation. I could repeat it a hundred times, but it's true every time I say it. When you are motivated, when you feel yourself emotionally engaged in the subject, you learn faster. You learn what could take somebody 10 years to learn, you can learn in two years. When you feel emotionally engaged with something, you're able to push past all the obstacles. I want you to get over this notion. That is, that's the most ludicrous, stupid, ridiculous, idiotic, dumb thing you can imagine. All right. <laughs> that that uh, intelligence has nothing to do with success in life that uh, brain size doesn't correlate with intelligence, that you know, there's absolutely no connection between IQ and success. What do you think motivates people? I, I mean, this is so stupid. Let me just uh, pick it apart here. That I find so annoying. Okay, just because something is annoying it doesn't mean it's wrong. All sorts of things are annoying and wrong. Like, I find it annoying that the statistics seem to indicate that in 2022, something like 13% of the population was responsible for 55% of the homicides. I find that highly annoying, but I'm not going to deny it because I find it annoying, right? That you find something annoying doesn't, doesn't mean anything. That has no significance but your own psychology and your own you know, personal happiness. That so many people have, that success and power in life is dependent on something like genetics. Okay, so is uh, success in the National Football League, is success in the National Basketball Association dependent on genetics? If you are, you know, five foot two as an adult, right, you are never going to play on the offensive line or in any position in the National Football League. Yeah, so genetics doesn't necessarily determine your success but what it does is determine your potential for success like some people are born with a larger brain or some people are born with a larger brain or they have wealthy parents who are able to send them to the right school and some people do have that and that can play a role in success but the biggest reason for your success, if you have wealthy parents who can send you to the right school, is not the wealthy parents and not the right school. It's that wealthy parents tend to come from genetics that are, have above average IQ, which correlates with having more money. Or it's all a matter of luck. What really makes people successful? There is a tremendous amount of luck in life. Whether you find that annoying or not. Successful and powerful in life. And it's not just me saying this. I read hundreds of books on this. Okay, so just because hundreds of books say something, and just because you've read hundreds of books, uh, does not make you an expert and does not make you right. Subject. What makes people successful is their degree of motivation. Okay. So let's say someone is, you know, in Auschwitz. All right. They can be incredibly motivated but they're highly unlikely to be successful in the wider world, you know, if they're stuck in Auschwitz or they're stuck in some, you know, God-forsaken part of, of Africa. I could repeat it a hundred times, but it's true every time I say it. When you are motivated, when you feel yourself emotionally engaged in the... 
So what shapes your motivations? What shapes your emotions, right? Your genetics. Subject, you learn faster. You learn what could take. You know who also learn faster? People with higher IQs, they learn faster. Somebody 10 years to learn, you can learn in two years. When you feel emotionally engaged with something, you're able to push past all the obstacles. And what's going to shape, you know, how emotionally engaged you get into something, it will be, in large part, your genetics in addition to your early years imprinting. Rustin says, doesn't that way of thinking make people who succeed feel much more in control? Instead of saying, I'm smart, so I'm successful, they can now say, I'm a much better person, and that's why I'm successful. Yes. Have I invited the Decoding the Gurus on the show? No. I once uh, DM'd Chris Kavanaugh, asked him, why have academics moved on from the idea that we need a free market in ideas? He, he didn't respond. So I may very well invite you know, the Decoding the Gurus on... I'm not sure if I'll be able to secure that interview. Oh, so a friend, friend uh, 10 days ago or two weeks ago, a few weeks ago, sent me a link to the Financial Times. And so I ended up spending $186 on a Financial Times subscription. And a significant reason why I did so was so that I could read the columns of Janan Ganesh who is from Sri Lanka, and he's probably the most prestigious pundit op-ed writer in the world today. And here's a good op-ed column. Podcasts aren't as smart as you think. So this is how he defines the function of podcasts. They are companionable and even intimate background noise as one does something else. The hard content is, if not irrelevant, then secondary to the vicarious bonhomie a listener gets from well-matched presenters. That is still fine service, but people are starting to conflate it with the hard grind of learning. At worst, they substitute it for reading. The success of politico-historical podcasts in particular is said to reveal unguessed-at reserves of civic engagement and intellectual hunger in the public. That is a lot of way to put on what is, for most listeners, a sort of conversational music should be obvious what is going on. People are willing to do almost anything other than read at length. Reading at length requires patience. It is an atrophied muscle in the smartphone age. At the same time, no one relishes being ignorant or incurious. The desire for self-improvement out there is real. One way of squaring these opposing impulses, the bibliophobic, the aspirational, is to give things that aren't books the intellectual status of books. And so we have told the polite lie for 20 years that TV drama is the new novel. It isn't. Can't do the microscopic human observation. It is too reliant on hooks and too hostile to, to digressions. It asks too little of the audience. In Britain, the soap opera lost its central place in national life at the same time as serious TV took off. That isn't a coincidence. The second is much the same thing as the first, but with better PR. So something like Downton Abbey, all right, that is a soap opera with better PR. The hype around the podcast is the latest stage in this face-saving for the non-reader. A podcast has all the simulation of learning. The presenters are steeped in their subjects. The episodes are the length of academic lectures. Like the computer game, another pretender in recent times to the stature of literature carries no social stigma. In the end, though, the audience isn't having to do anything. Even Carl Sagan and AJP Taylor, popularizers of hard subjects for the laity from another age, ask you to sit through high-protein monologues with little relief in the form of banter and whimsy. Kenneth Clark's civilization is one man's drawl and sensibility for 650 minutes. Next to a podcast, their work was a slog. 
but I can remember much of the content. Five hours of podcasts wash over me and leave no mental residue. I wonder about the stickiness of knowledge that you don't have to fight for. I also wonder if that is ever the point for podcast listeners. Just the sound of human voices is precious in a society of transient relationships and sole occupancy households. The podcast booms show that we want every edition without effort, the palm without the dust. More than that, we want each other. So Janan Ganesh, a good reason for spending $186 on a Financial Times subscription. Right, here is Richard Spencer's space from January 25. You're in survival mode, you're not going to build a house. You're going to you're going to like dig a pit exactly. and exactly. you know, survive the night. That but that's not good, but that's kind of on you. So this is Richard Spencer here critiquing the left. You. Yeah. No, I, you know? I understand. All right, Rocco, you can respond. Hey, thanks man. I just wanted to come back to this idea of um uh eating bugs and where you would <clears throat> where you would get that idea from um so i i just did a little bit of quick research on it and um you know it seems that you can go to quite a lot of different left-wing um outlets and you can see articles advocating for eating bugs as being like the future of the human race you know um we're gonna we're gonna eat the bugs um and i think um I think Mary Angela was uh, was saying that we need to do that to prevent climate change, right? I was saying, uh, what about eating about climate change? I, she actually I, hasn't spoken yet. You, uh, it's, it's, I haven't yeah. oh, spoken. Sorry, it was Lee. Sorry, it was Lee. It wasn't no, Mary. I'm not saying we need to eat bugs to prevent climate change. I'm saying climate change is going to bring on famine, more famine, and so I think, and I think there is a sort of desperate attempt to identify food sources that will not, um, you know continue to contribute to the global warming that we're seeing and which obviously um, cattle production uh, does in, in, in to a large extent. Um, but I mean, I like a steak, so I mean, I'm not going to go like I'm, I'm there are people already on the planet who eat insects and that's just part of their culture. Like, again, it's it you can find articles to defend almost any position. I, I don't know a lot of leftists who are really excited about eating bugs. I'm just going to say that. But don't you think we, like, as a planet, we have, like, enough people? I mean, it, it's, like, I, I don't, I know this sounds, like, exceedingly harsh, but, like... Yeah, Richard Spencer wouldn't mind if we had a, a, a billion fewer people, or two billion, or three billion fewer people. It's kind of uh, breathtaking. We've had this explosion of the population post-industrial revolution and fossil fuels. And th so we've always kind of been living on borrowed time. And uh, really, most most uh, signs for, for human flourishing, to use some lefty term, are positive. We can absolutely feed everybody in, in the world today. So I, I don't agree with Richard that having, you know, 8 billion people on the planet is just inherently a disaster. And we've created a kind of like grotesque version of humanity. We, we've we've uh, made scientific advancements galore, but we've also created a kind of grotesque version of humanity. Really? Really? How is the humanity we have now, say, more grotesque 
compared to what's existed in the past 6,000 years. Now, you can certainly find examples of how humanity now is more grotesque than what we had previously, but you can also find examples for why humanity now is superior to what we had previously. So in some ways, perhaps we're better off as humanity. In some ways, we're worse off. I, I don't... I don't identify with Richard Spencer's contempt for, you know, a large part of humanity. Of, you know, people living in abject poverty, but also people, you know, 200 pounds overweight and, and living in obesity. Like, I, I don't, like, the idea of, like, attempting to desperately save all this or attempting to, like... Yeah, I would, uh, I'm I'm for measures to try to save the lives of people who are 200 pounds overweight. I don't believe that being 200 pounds overweight, you forfeit, you know, any, any right to live. Bring people into a bug laden version of the American lifestyle. Like none of these things. A bug laden version of the American lifestyle. That would be, that would still be a superior way of living for approximately 7 billion people on earth. I just don't share Richard's contempt for humanity. Sounds very attractive to me. And we don't need to yeah. save this world. You know, like it, it might need to shatter and what's going to come out of it is going to be better. And like stronger people are going to be in charge. I mean, I... what's going to come out of it? So what's going to come out of losing a billion or two people? Is that what Richard's referring to? You'll probably well, hate that vision that I just expressed. No, but, you know? Hang on a second. Though. I mean, like, so... First of all, to, to Lee's point, you know, it is in the mainstream left-wing media, and I've got a Guardian article that I posted up there, you know, if we want to save the planet, the future of food is insects. So they actually want people to stop eating meat and start eating bugs instead, because um, it emits less carbon dioxide, apparently. Um, I mean, is, is that an argument that you're endorsing, Lee, that, like, we, we need to stop eating meat and start eating bugs as a, a left-wing vision of the future? <laughs> I'm not going to defend these articles. I agree that there is a push in the media to sort of normalize this. And um, I would encourage you to question where that's coming from in part. But, um, you know, I think that eating less meat is, is helpful to everyone for a variety of reasons. And I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, I've said multiple times now that I'm insects, eating insects is not something that appeals to me in particular. If I went to a culture where it was part of their norm and um, a host offered me some fried crickets or whatever, I would eat them because I, that's the, that is the um, polite and, and respectful thing to do. But am I going to make half of my yeah. diet crickets? Um, no. Uh, but, you know, would I automatically reject something made with cricket flour because it had it in it? Ah, you know, I can't say that I would. It wouldn't appeal to me, but who the hell knows? I mean, I didn't think we'd be inter eating... Okay, so being polite and being a good guest is certainly a value, but I, I don't think you need to necessarily violate your own values to do so. So if I was offered uh, crickets, I, I would not eat them. If I was offered an alcoholic drink, I, I would not drink it. So you know, I put reasonable efforts towards being a good guest, but I'm not going to violate my own values to be a good guest for somebody else. And if a dinner or a party is boring to me, I will leave. I, I'm not going to be held hostage out of, you know, concern for being a polite and good guest. You know, high fructose corn syrup and all these other things we eat now that are not actual foods. Yeah. Right. But I mean, I guess the point I'm making is that, you know, this is like whether you like it or not. I've got an article from the WEF, from the BBC, from the Guardian. I can find another 15 or 20 of them if you like. And it's not a fringe position. They're not like, so you're saying, oh, well, if I went to a culture where they ate insects. But no, this is not what these articles are saying. They're saying people in the West need to stop eating steak 
we need to shut down the methods of production for meat and replace them wholly, totally with insects. Rocco, Rocco, um, I have multiple times said that this is not a dialogue that I wish to engage with you on, and I want you to respect that boundary. If you would like to talk about eating insects and host a space in which you debate that and, and, and present the um, the opposition, feel free to do so. But I'm gonna I'm gonna back out now and let Richard have his space back. Can I can I right. say something here? Yeah, Leah, Leah, I really appreciate you. Everything you said, spot on, spot on. And I I really encourage people, whether you like Joe Biden or you don't, this this whole notion about like what can we do about climate change. Joe Biden has an entire, I just looked at it. You can go to the website. You can go to the White House website. I mean, it's about like electric cars and getting, you know, solar and wind. And I mean, we're, we're, we're just, we're, I'm a leftist. I, my podcast is Lush Left Media, a little plug there. I don't, I've never had any guests on my show and I've had everybody from every you know media outlet come on my show, sometimes talking about climate change. And I can assure you the bugs thing was never, has never been brought up. It's not like the thing we talk about. We talk about electric vehicles we talk about you know when are we gonna how fast is it gonna be where, where there's charging stations you know on every highway things like that i mean so no one's taking anybody's stoves no one's taking your meat your, your steaks away i'm a steak eater i just think that's and, and leah's correct that it's not just the economy or you know survival or climate change but it's also things like look there, there's something inherent in in leftism that wants to continually educate people there are always new areas where people need to be reprogrammed away from their purported ignorance and bigotry and their attachment to you know traditional folkways this is just something that seems to be just hardwired into the liberal left psychology women's rights lgbtq rights and those things matter as well well i mean you may say with respect mary that nobody's coming to your meet but you're, you're, you're coming wrong. are you terribly afraid that? That someone's no, coming for your meat? That, um, it's, it's not a matter of being afraid. It's just a fact, right? This has already happened in Scotland. They've made it illegal to have meat on the menus in hospitals and government buildings. Um, it's coming, right? This is what your side is pushing. I, I mean, I know you might not like it, right? But it's happening. Let, let's, let's extract a little bit from this discussion because I, I think everyone's kind of said their piece on the shall we eat bugs issue. And let me ask just a bigger question. Um, can an American lifestyle be globalized in the sense of, do we want, is that desirable, but is it even really possible? Because I, I think that this has been this deep assumption. Among totalitarian ideologies in the 20th century, they, they all were based on some level about modernization and increasing. Well, for most people on Earth, right, a more American lifestyle would be a significant upgrade. It would afford them a much higher quality of life, meaning more trips to see grandma, right, less debilitating illness promoting a higher lifestyle, a standard of living, whether that's Americanism, whether that's communism, whether that's fascism. They all, they had, they were different, obviously, but they, they all kind of had that basis. And I do feel like we're at a point, I mean, do you actually want America for 8 billion people? Is this possible? And like, if you, if you can't answer that question, then all of these kind of like tweaks about climate change just seem to me like whistling past the graveyard or something. Richard, like this is I, I gotta tell you, when, you, when you brought this up a few minutes ago, there was like an accelerationist kind of thing I think you got going on. Am I wrong? Am I right there? A little you bit. might be correct, yes. Okay, well, I, I, I think most people that are in the rational on Earth One don't believe in accelerationism. It doesn't matter if you believe in it or not. I mean, like, the entire... So Tim, Tim Grossclose, he's a professor at George Mason University, which was uh, racially segregated until the 1950s. He says that in China's COVID fog... Between December 15 and February 1, China had about 4.09 million COVID deaths. So the Chinese government said only 80,000 people died during this period. But, you know, 4.9 million 
is is huge. So if the total US COVID deaths are only about 1.1 million. And if you count excess deaths as being overwhelmingly COVID related, then America's had something like 1.5 million COVID deaths. Here's an estimate of China suffering over 4 million deaths in six weeks. Uh, you have 12 deaths of leading Chinese scientists just between October 15 and December 15. You have 37 deaths of leading Chinese scientists between December 15 and February 1. That's over six a week. So during a normal week in China, 103,000 people aged 75 or older die. So the average age of Americans 75 or older is about 81. So the typical 81-year-old is a 6% chance of dying over the next year. Same is true in China. Then approximately 103,000 Chinese who are 75 or older die each week. So in the U.S., approximately 53% of all COVID deaths occurred in people 75 and older. If the same is true in China, then that would mean about 4 million Chinese deaths from COVID during just six weeks. So interesting New York Times article here. In China's COVID fog, deaths of scholars offer a clue. Entire planet is massively leveraged at this point. It is huge, unfathomable amounts of debt and unfathomable amounts of kind of expectations for the future. What I'm saying is it doesn't matter whether you, you know, think I'm being a little too Nietzschean or something in suggesting these things. Like you're going to have to face this reality on Earth one, whether you, you're going to have to answer that question. You, you can't just like say, oh, we'll deal with it later. We'll have a, a bunch of wind stations or something. But didn't, like, you, have, but didn't you kind of say it might be a preferable thing because then we could just like kind of start all over or something like that. And didn't you say that like five minutes ago? Well, so the, things do start over. Like, like well, it's, it's not it's not terribly unusual in terms of world history for societies to collapse and then like things begin again on a new basis with new assumptions. That's not like some crazy thing that I'm suggesting. Okay, well, I think most people here are very attached to their loved ones, their li- their you know their lives, and would like progress. Well, is that progress going to be a globalization of the American experience? I believe in this country, and I think so. I, I do. I think that we we are imperfect in a million ways. But we, we two steps forward, one step back. We always make progress, even if it's a little bit at a time. Is progress defined as the Mall of America being built in the Congo? So are you saying that it's like imperialism on, on, on our part? That is, that we, and we should just do it. All I'm saying them? is that, like, Amer- look, I live here. There are many great things about America, but, like, it's not that great. I mean, like, I, I don't know what to tell you. Like, we're not going to be remembered as a great civilization. Like, we haven't really, like, there are great things about America, but, like, most of the people are dumb. And, like, we're not producing... Like, I don't know what to say. Like, we're, this is, we're not going to equal, like, Romans or Greeks in terms of our civilizational output. Like, we're going to be remembered by the fact that we created SpongeBob and that, like, half of our population was obese. So you don't think like, that there's just... anything that, that has happened that could be considered, like, positive? Listen, I'm not, like... Yes, I do think many things are positive. I do. Right. I mean, what are you talking about? You're, you're, you're acting like very... As if, like, it's all bad. Like, what do you I'm mean? I'm not saying it's all bad. I live here. It's totally reasonable. There are many good things about it, many good people. But let's not, like, overlook the fact that we have, like, created a nihilistic culture on, like, the... Okay, so I think, uh, Richard, there's a little excessively negative about America. America has accomplished great things and still affords, you know, a quality of life to to people that is generally speaking superior to what they will get in most other countries in the world. Now, there's an extraordinary 
though lengthy four-part series in the Columbia Journalism Review. All right, a bastion of liberalism, no doubt. All right, this is an extraordinary series, and it's not a quick or easy read. It was published January 30th by a longtime investigative reporter, Jeff Gerth. And it's about the press's coverage of Russiagate and how awful it was. It's, it's hard work, right, getting through this four-part series. But if you're interested in this story, I just experienced, whenever I would read about Russiagate stories, my mind would just wander, wander. when I'd you know, try to pay attention to the, the Mueller inquiry. I, it could never sustain my attention. It never made any sense to me that Russians spending, you know, a few thousand dollars on Facebook ads was serious interference with our election or that Russia essentially hacked out a 2016 election. These, these things just never made sense. The whole, you know, Russiagate thing just never w- was convincing to me. But, you know, Jeff Gersh has finally done the hard work of pointing out how bad it was and has published in a bastion of liberalism, the Columbia Journalism Review. So let me, it's so long, obviously, I can't read all of it. Let me just read a few excerpts. The end of the long inquiry into whether Donald Trump was colluding with Russia. There was never any evidence that Donald Trump was colluding with Russia. Came in July 2019 when Robert Mueller III, the special counsel, took seven sometimes painful hours to essentially say no. Bob Mueller is not going to do it, is how Dean Baquet, then the executive editor of the New York Times, described the moment his paper's readers realized Mueller was not going to pursue Trump's ouster. So I remember when Trump was elected president. So first of all, in 2015-2016, many smart people I knew, successful people I knew, said there's no way that Donald Trump will ever win the Republican nomination. Then they said there's no way he'll win the election. Once he was elected, they say you know he'll be impeached within two weeks. And so Steve Saylor often talks about how Dean Baquet pivoted in 2019 after realizing that Robert Mueller was not going to get rid of Donald Trump. He then pivoted to pushing Black Lives Matter as you know the way to, to get rid of Donald Trump. So Dean Baquet was speaking to his New York Times colleagues in a town hall meeting soon after the Mueller testimony concluded. He acknowledged that New York Times had been caught a little tiny bit flat-footed by the outcome of Mueller's investigation. So this was the dominant story in the news media between 2016 and 2019, and it was essentially a big, fat zero. That would prove to be more than an understatement, but neither Dean Baquet nor his successors nor any of the paper's reporters would offer anything like a postmortem of the paper's Trump-Russia saga unlike the examination the New York Times did of its coverage before the Iraq war. So all sorts of Pulitzer Prizes were given out for New York Times, Washington Post, and other media coverage of Russiagate, and none of these Pulitzer Prizes have been rescinded. Now, the Pulitzer Committee says they investigated two, they had two separate independent investigations and concluded there was no need to withdraw these Pulitzers, but they don't give any information. They don't make these investigations public. They don't say who conducted them. They don't you know, reveal anything. So Dean Bacay adds, I think we covered Russiagate story better than anyone else, had the prizes to prove it. But outside of the New York Times own bubble, the damage to the credibility of the New York Times and its peers persists three years on. Yes, for three years, the dominant story in the American news media and therefore much of the world news media was about something that had no significance, right? Our media was dominated 
by hysteria that had no basis. So, outside of the Times' own bubble, the damage to the credibility of the New York Times and its peers persists three years on. It is likely to take on new energy as the nation faces yet another election season animated by antagonism toward the press. At its root was an undeclared war between an entrenched media and a new kind of disruptive presidency with its own hyperbolic version of the truth. At times, Trump seems almost to be toying with the press, offering spontaneous answers to questions about Russia that seem to point to darker narratives. When these storylines were authoritatively undercut, the followers, follow-ups were downplayed or ignored. So Trump and his acolytes in the conservative media fueled the ensuing political storm, but the hottest flashpoints emerged from the work of mainstream journalism. The two most inflammatory and enduring slogans commandeered by Trump in this conflict were fake news and the news media as the enemy of the American people. They both grew out of stories in the first weeks of 2017 about Trump and Russia that wound up, stories that wound up being significantly flawed based on uncorroborated or debunked information, according to FBI documents that later became public, both relied on anonymous sources. So before the 2016 election, most Americans trusted the traditional news media and the trend was positive. Today, the U.S. media has the lowest credibility among 46 nations. Donald Trump can't stop looking back, so Donald Trump gave two interviews to Jeff Gersh. He made clear he remains furious over what he calls the witch hunt or hoax and remains obsessed with Mueller, so for very good reason. So Jeff Gersh says, during my interview with Trump, he appeared tired, but his energy level kicked in when it came to questions about Mueller and the news media. So he made clear in the early weeks of 2017, after initially hoping to get along with the press, he found himself inundated by a wave of Russia-related stories. He then realized that surviving, if not combating the media, was an integral part of his job. I realized early on I had two jobs, he said. The first was to run the country. The second was survival. I had to survive. The stories were unbelievably fake. Donald Trump was right about this. Right, News outlets and news watchdogs have not been forthright in examining their own Trump-Russia coverage, which includes serious flaws. Bob Woodward of the Washington Post told me that news coverage of the Russian inquiry wasn't handled well, and he thought that viewers and readers had been cheated. He urged newsrooms to walk down the painful road of introspection. So Jeff Gersh has put two years into this analysis, sought interviews with all the major players, and virtually no major journalist or news organization would cooperate with him. That very few news organizations have reckoned with what transpired between the press and the presidency. So Donald Trump entered the presidential race June 16, 2015. And Hillary Clinton at that time, she was the one facing scrutiny over Russian ties. So the Times was publishing stories about a lucrative speech in Moscow by Bill Clinton, Russian-related donations, the Clinton Family Foundation, Russian-friendly initiatives by the Obama administration while Hillary was Secretary of State. Now, as Trump's political viability grew in 2016, and he voiced admiration for Russia's strong leader, Clinton and her campaign would secretly sponsor and publicly promote an unsubstantiated conspiracy theory that there was a secret alliance between Trump and Russia, and the media essentially... You know, carried on that mission for three years. So once Trump started to gain traction with voters, once it became clear his candidacy was no longer a joke, you know, once he finally nailed down the GOP nomination, right, he started to speak critically about NATO. 
and there was concerns within the deep state, the national security world, right? Supercharged by a small group of former journalists turned private investigators who operated out of a small office near DuPont Circle in Washington under the name Fusion GPS. So you had Glenn Simpson, former Wall Street Journal reporter and a Fusion co-founder, flying in May 2016 to meet uh, Steele, a former officer within MI6, who had his own investigative firm, Orbis Business Intelligence. So Fusion had assembled records on Donald Trump's business dealings, and the client for this old job was the Washington Free Beacon, which is a conservative online publication financially backed by Paul Singer, a hedge fund billionaire and a Trump critic. So after Trump won the Republican nomination, Fusion signed a new research contract with a law firm representing the Democratic National Committee and the Clinton campaign. So Fusion's mission had changed from a collection of public records to human intelligence gathering related to Trump and Russia. So in June 2016, the Washington Post broke a story that the Democratic National Committee had been hacked, and the Democrats attributed this hacking to Russia. Well, we don't have that evidence yet that Russia was behind this. So the, the, the Washington Post published a long piece inside Trump's financial ties to Russia and his unusual flattery of Vladimir Putin. So the piece tries to collect all this evidence of Trump's dependence on wealthy Russians. Now, the lead author on this story was a former Wall Street Journal reporter who'd worked previously with the Fusion GPS guys, and they were sharing a ton of information. So Fusion GPS, which is essentially funded by enemies of Donald Trump, is pumping out you know, bogus information to leading journalists. So July 18, 2016, Josh Rogan, opinion columnist for The Washington Post, writes a story about the Republican Party's platform position on Ukraine under the headline, Trump campaign guts GOP's anti-Russian stance on Ukraine. Right? The story was bogus, right? So the original draft of the platform was strengthened by adding language on tightening sanctions on Russia for Ukraine actions and calling for additional assistance for Ukraine. What was rejected was a proposal to supply arms to Ukraine, something the Obama administration hadn't done. So... Our relationship with Ukraine has dominated American politics for about seven years now. So even though Josh Rogan's piece was largely bogus, it caught the attention of other journalists. So you had Paul Krugman in the New York Times started calling Donald Trump the Siberian candidate, which, again, is just a bogus claim. Jeffrey Goldberg, editor of The Atlantic, labeled Donald Trump a de facto agent of Putin. Just reckless, no evidence for this. He cites Josh Rogan's column and an interview that Trump gave to the New York Times where he emphasized the importance of NATO members paying their bills, right? That, that doesn't make you know, Trump an agent of Putin. Now, some journalists saw the Josh Rogan piece differently. Marsha Gessen, Russian-American journalist, harsh Putin critic, you know, said that calling Trump a Putin agent was deeply flawed. She said that uh, these news media accounts of the Republican platform revisions were misleading because sanctions remained the proposal for lethal aid to Ukraine was a step too far for most experts and the Obama administration. So Matt Taibbi, who spent several years as a journalist in Russia, grew uneasy about the Trump-Russia coverage. He would compare the media's performance to its failures during the run-up to the Iraq war. All right, for good reason. It was a career-changing moment for me, he said. The more neutral approach to reporting went completely out the window once Donald Trump got elected. 
suggesting anything publicly about the story that did not align with the narrative. So I talk often about how the news media essentially collectively decides on a narrative or an emotional tone for almost all major stories. And if you did, do not go along with the narrative, the repercussions are huge, right? It's very difficult to back your peer, or to buck your peers. So Matt Taibbi, as well as Green, Glenn Greenwald and Aaron Mate, right, left their publications or were publicly critical of the press's Trump-Russia narrative. Right. So many good good bits in this four-part long series by Jeff Gersh in Columbia Journalism Review, all freely available online. I'm going to try to read some of the highlights. Widest, broadest scale imaginable. And that, like, this is going to have to come to an end. And it coming to an end could lead to greater things in the future. Like, let's be at least open to that potential. Because I don't want the Mall of America in the Congo. I don't okay, think that's, Richard, like, a great I, I, I never thought I would be speaking with you, but let's continue. Um, okay. what, what is your vision of... I'll just use, I don't know if you use the word, but burn it all down, accelerationism, whatever it is you're talking about. What would that look like? Are you talking about we should... I'm not um, suggesting what? that we burn it down. I'm suggesting that the, the current world order is leveraged. It's on stilts. And it's going to come... Like, we can't ultimately do this. And I think we're seeing... Okay, here are some more highlights from this Jeff Gush piece. So the Clinton administration, through a law firm, is funding Fusion GPS to find negative size negative information about Donald Trump and, and Russia. So July 24, 2016, Hillary's campaign manager, Robbie Mook, tells CNN and ABC that Trump had changed the Republican platform to become more pro-Russian. And the, the hack and dump of Democratic National Committee emails was done by the Russians for the purpose of hel helping Donald Trump, according to unnamed experts. But there's no evidence for this. So Clinton herself approved a proposal from one of her foreign policy advisors to vilify Donald Trump by stirring up a scandal claiming interference by Russian security services. And Donald Trump is essentially unaware of these plans to tie him to the Kremlin, and he inadvertently pumps life into the sputtering Russian narrative. So asked about the DNC hacks by reporters on his Trump National Doral Miami Golf Resort on July 27, Trump says, Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. All right, this was a joke, but it was picked up and treated seriously by the press. Clinton National Security aide Jake Sullivan, right, he's got a powerful role, does he not, with the Biden administration? He called the remarks a national security issue. This joke, he calls it a national security issue. The, the comment became a major exhibit, this joke became a major exhibit over the next several years for those who believe Trump had an untoward relationship with Russia. And so Jeff Gersh asked Trump what he meant by the comment, and Trump says, if you look at the whole tape, it's obvious that what was being said was sarcastic. And so Jeff notes that when Trump made this remark, his facial demeanor changed into his TV entertainer mode. He was being playful when he said that leakers would probably be rewarded mightily by the press if they found Clinton's long-lost emails because they contained some beauties. And then Trump tried to control the damage by tweeting that whoever had Clinton's deleted emails should share that with the FBI. So Fusion is trying to promote another unproven conspiracy theory that Trump's company was involved in back-channel communications with a Russian bank, and you find hundreds of emails were exchanged between Fusion and reporters for the for ABC, the Wall Street Journal, Yahoo, the Washington Post, Slate, Reuters, and the New York Times during the last months of the campaign. They share raw Trump-related information. They contain hints 
contact government campaign officials to bolster the credibility of these accusations. That is from a four-part Jeff Gersh series in Columbia Journalism Review, which is an elite and liberal outlet. Being the initial stages of a major collapse. But that's why there's solutions like let's let's get let's get solar panels. Let's do something about climate change. Let's do something about being better to each other and making sure there's equality for everyone. But that we are follow? so leveraged. That, those kinds of things, I might agree with a lot of those things, but like, I, I absolutely think we should be, you know, engaging in nuclear power. I'm, you know, enthused in many ways about like this possibility of nuclear fusion and so on. But like, just building some more windmills and like having better human relations, like, that's not going to cut it. I don't see you. I don't hear you advocating for accelerationism. I hear you acknowledging that things are accelerating. And I agree. And I, yes, agree, and exactly. I agree with that. I mean, climate change is accelerating. It's accelerated within my lifetime. Well, right. right? Um, and, and that's why focusing on solutions. So this is what was happening throughout the the 2016-2019 Russiagate campaign. You had Democrats and anti-Trump people leaking information to journalists and then linking to those eventual journalistic reports and calling them bombshells, but not disclosing that the campaign is essentially secretly paying the researchers who are providing this information to journalists. So... The anti-Trump forces are consistently boosting through the press you know, storylines that they themselves have bought, paid for, and engineered. That Michael Isakoff, all right, a reliable lefty, he began publicly casting doubts about the accuracy of much of this Russiagate coverage. In a 2022 interview, Isakoff pointed to his earlier description of this uh, fusion dossier as third-hand stuff. It should never have been given the credence it was. So Clinton campaign mid-September 2016 was eagerly anticipating a bombshell story on Trump-Russia from the New York Times. So they were particularly hopeful that uh, Times reporter Eric Lickblau would uh, publishing something damaging. So Eric Lickblau tended to be particularly credulous with regard to Russiagate stories. So let me play a little bit more here from Richard Spencer. Instead space. of this demonization of one another and bringing up, you know, red herring, strawman arguments about how awful the other people are is, is just it helps people who are already in power and super wealthy and who will survive no matter what we do. So I, I think we really need to think a little bit harder about that. Yeah. OK, Rocco, I'll let you um, I am going to wind this down pretty soon because I want to go to the gym. But do you want to respond to some of these notions, these dangerous history sure. notions I've been <laughs> um, I'm so, the, the first... so another particularly credulous reporter pushing this bogus Russiagate narratives is Franklin Foyer, right, who now writes for The Atlantic. He worked closely with Fusion GPS. He would forward drafts of his stories to Fusion prior to publication. And now he, he won't comment about what he, what he did. First one is I actually, I actually don't think that the planet is uh, full, right? Um, I actually have something on my Substack trying to estimate <clears throat> how many people you could fit on Earth living at the level of a multimillionaire today, and it's a lot, right? It's like trillions. Um, but ev you know, for every order of magnitude increase in people, you need an increase in technology, right? Right. And, you know, to scale the Earth up to a trillion people, um, you would need to, you know, instead of this idea. 
So December 2016, after Donald Trump won the election, President Obama ordered a quick assessment by the intelligence community of Russia's involvement in the 2016 election. This assessment was coordinated by the Director of National Intelligence. It was produced by the National Security Agency. In mid-December 2016, the Washington Post reported the FBI now backed the CIA view that Russia aimed to help Trump win the election, as opposed to just having a broader set of motivations, such as creating disruption in the U.S. So Peter Strzok at that time was the FBI official running the probe. He texted a colleague about this unprecedented wave of leaks. As the CIA has been leaking like mad. Also coming leaks from the senior levels of the U.S. government or Congress. So Trump is unaware of the coming tornado, including the most salacious contents of the dossier. He sets out to form a government. He tries to make peace with the press. He makes the round news organizations. He meets with broadcast anchors, editors at Condé Nast and the New York Times. He calls the New York Times a world jewel. But he has no idea what's coming down the pike with this bogus you know, Russiagate hysteria. The idea of we're going to eat bugs to, you know, um, have less CO2, you know, you're going to be like putting in solar shades, you're going to be engaging in geoengineering, you're going to push solar power, wind power, nuclear power, all of these types of energy. Um, you know, the actual physical limit that limits how many people you can have on the planet is it's actually quite surprising, but it's the ability to reject heat. So, hmm. you know, Earth is like a thermodynamic engine and there is a limited amount of heat we can radiate away into space on the night side of the planet. And that's the actual ultimate limit of how many people you can have. And that gets you well into the tens of trillions, uh, even a quadrillion people could live on, on the planet. So Earth is not full. Um, but you see, it's a, it's a dynamic process. At each stage where the population increases, the level of technology has to increase to support them, right? right. Um, I think what we're seeing... So these American intelligence officers released the Intelligence Community Assessment ICA on Russian activities in 2016, claims that Russia had mounted an influence campaign aimed at the election but not compromising vote tally systems. It concludes most controversially and without much evidence that Putin developed a clear preference for President-elect Donald Trump. Right, so... Many reporters called this assessment flawed, that it was based on conjecture, incorporated misreported, mistranslated, and false public statements. With things like the climate change movement, which I think of, I mean, I'm not a climate change denier, it's, it's a real thing, but I think the movement is a bit scammy in that they're telling people they have to like eat bugs and get rid of their gas stoves and you can't have a car and you can't have children and all these other things, but what we really need to do to... So the dam finally broke when CNN disclosed that uh, James Comey, then head of the FBI, had given Donald Trump a, a briefing about this dossier. BuzzFeed post the full dossier with a warning the material was not verifiable. So it was kind of a twist in the symbiotic relationship between the media and the national security apparatus because BuzzFeed and CNN right, cited the government's use of the dossier to justify their going ahead, but no one's able to find, you know, verification or substantiation for much of the most damaging allegations in this dossier. So the government then cites the media for its actions. So James Comey in his 2018 book, A Higher Loyalty, writes that CNN had informed the FBI that they were going to run with it as soon as the next day. I could see no way out of telling Donald Trump. James Comey also cites CNN imminent disclosures in a subsequent explanation to Trump. So essentially you have... You know, intelligence officers and officers of the government, you know, working hand in hand with the news media to leak and promote unverified and ultimately bogus stories about Donald Trump and Russiagate.
combat climate change is geological engineering, right? Like we need to engineer the atmosphere, space, the oceans in order to optimize the planet's climate. And we're going to have to do that at some point anyway. It's like, it's coming, whether you like it or not. The question is just whether you do it sooner or later. And there's the gains from doing geoengineering sooner are like far better than the gains from eating bugs or giving up your car or not having children or any of these other stupid things. So I think, you know, what you have to see, what, you know, when you look at things like that, the solutions for climate change that the modern left is coming up with is it's basically never waste a good crisis, right? You know, they see climate change. They don't want to solve climate change. They want to exploit it in order to push their ideology, which is, you know, the bug eating is humiliation. It's a ritual humiliation of people because everyone finds bugs disgusting. Um, if you can get something, if you can get people to do something that they fundamentally don't want to do, you humiliate them and you sort of express your power relationship to them. It really has nothing to do with actually practically solving climate change. If you want to practically solve climate change, you go massively all out on solar, wind. New all right, this is how uh, Jeff Gersh concludes. It says, uh, journalism's primary missions informing the public and ho holding the powerful accountable have been undermined by the erosion of journalistic norms and the media's own lack of transparency about its work. This combination adds to people's distrust about the news media. It exacerbates frayed political and social differences. One traditional journalistic standard that wasn't always followed in the Trump-Russia coverage is the need to report facts that run counter to the prevailing narrative. So in January 2018, for example, New York Times ignored a publicly available document showing that the FBI's lead investigator did not think after 10 months of inquiry into possible Trump-Russia ties that there was much there. This omission disserved Times readers, the paper says. This reporting was thorough. Another axiom of journalism that was neglected in the Trump-Russia coverage was the failure to seek and reflect comment from people who are the subject of serious criticism. And then... Enormous use of anonymous sources that kind of got turbocharged in the, in the Trump era. So a federal agency like the CIA or the FBI would secretly brief Congress. Then politicians would selectively leak snippets. Then the story would come out using vague attribution. And then there's this lack of transparency by media organizations in responding to my questions. Jeff Gersh says, I reached out to more than 60 journalists, only half responded of those who did. More than a dozen agreed to be interviewed on the record. However, not a single major news organization made available a newsroom leader to talk about their shoddy coverage. So during a time when the news media is under extraordinary attack and widely distrusted, a transparent, unbiased, and accountable media is needed more than ever. nuclear and geoengineering and it would be very easy to optimize the temperature optimize the sea levels um carbon dioxide is actually good right like it actually makes plants grow more so we actually we actually don't want to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide we want to slightly reduce the amount of incoming infrared radiation uh, probably by putting a solar shade into space and that would give us the temperature distribution we want and it would also give us actually crops that grow faster so i mean there's a lot of bullshit around about climate change um it's partly a technical subject but it's also partly political because as soon as you have a global public good like the atmosphere people are going to start using it for political purposes i i agree with a lot of what you said i'm i'm pro all of this even though i'm not um, an expert in any of these these things i, I do think there has to be a macro solution but I also think that there needs to be a kind of spiritual solution as well, because like you can when Nietzsche is famous for his concept of the Superman or Ubermensch or whatever, it, he's less famous for a concept which is maybe even more important. And that is the last man. And, you know, you can think about the last man in many different ways, but he basically is a kind of American middle class, self-satisfied, obese fuckface. And he doesn't the, the fact that God is dead doesn't even bother him that much because it's like, hand me the Big Mac. This just like the self-satisfaction and like unwillingness to criticize or even destroy yourself in moving forward is the like the spiritual problem of nihilism. Wow. It's a problem that 
people aren't willing to destroy themselves to move forward. It's, it's a problem that people are just too self-satisfied, really. I mean, I don't share this contempt for the average American. Is the fundamental issue not we have to crack. I can imagine fusion technology or solar shade or geoengineering resulting in way too much comfort for human beings. And it's ultimately kind of self-defeating in the sense that we're... So people with addiction issues like myself, like Richard Spencer, we really need to be as comfortable as possible because the more uncomfortable we get, the more likely we are to turn to addictive substances and processes. We're going to become, you know, AI will write our... So there can be healthy levels of discomfort. For example, I start every morning with a cold shower. So when I get up in the mornings in Los Angeles, it's about 40, 44 degrees. I turn on the cold shower. It is very cold indeed. Uh, there's there's a window open. You know, the, the cold air is coming in. The, the cold water is, you know, pounding me. But it is a discomfort within, you know, comforting guidelines. I realize I only have to endure 60 seconds under the cold shower. Then I get to get out, dry off. Now go to a place where I'm warm, you know, put on clothes. But generally speaking, just walking around with a high level of discomfort, it makes people less ethical. It makes people less considerate, less polite, less empathetic, right? The more at ease you are with yourself and the world around you, the more likely you are to be polite, courteous, empathetic, and a decent person. The more uncomfortable you are, the more likely you are to be selfish, brutish, and rude. Our term papers and do our homework, and you know we, we have infinite amount of food supplies and so on. And we, we, we descend into, in this nihilistic spiral, and we ultimately can't maintain the technology, and we return to a kind of primitive life. So much more important than any technological change is a total spiritual reorientation of humanity at large. And not on a nationalist basis, humanity. Every being on this planet, ultimately in the universe, needs to be channeled in an upward direction of striving i i just don't think you can have this kind of transform transformation outside of a national basis right it's normal natural for people to primarily identify with their tribe their community and their nation and not not resisting but like overcoming different obstacles we could get to, i can easily imagine some not being cracked by scientists where we are just allowed to descend into global obesity and like the american lifestyle writ large and I think that would ultimately end humanity if we don't spiritually. Uh, obesity is not going to end humanity, right? Obesity does not make someone a bad person. Obesity does not reduce the, the value of somebody's life. It should not, you know, reduce uh, he, normal human, you know, values, consideration, empathy, you know, care and concern for others, you know, treating other people decently, right? It should be unaffected by someone's obesity. Okay, that's going to do it for now. Take care. Bye-bye.